the knowledge I think is is very well worth it. The 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 difficulty with MBA programs in general is that there's not a set syllabus, right? There's not a set of classes that you know you will take when you get into business school and it's the same across every school, right? It's not like med school where you take all the same basics. Um, business school is more of what you make of it and what classes interest you. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is David Kamara from Cape Sierra Capital. And today we're talking about getting an MBA and real estate investing. He has an MBA from Chicago Booth, one of the top MBA programs in the world. And he became a real estate investor after getting it. And today we're digging into how his MBA helped him as a real estate investor. And then more broadly, how an MBA can be beneficial, but does it always make sense to get one before becoming a real estate investor? How can it help you? Is it really necessary? So we're really digging into that topic today. I don't talk about it that much, but this is a topic that I really dug into years ago in about 2014, 2013, 14, put a lot of thought and effort into whether I was going to go get an MBA and took the test, the GMAT, did pretty well and started applying to schools, but had some misgivings whether it really made sense for me. And then I read a little book, little purple book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and ultimately decided that it wasn't right for me. But that doesn't mean it's right or wrong for you. Maybe an MBA is right for you, maybe not. And today we're learning how David's MBA fit into his building of his real estate portfolio and his real estate business and how it could uh, fit for you or, or maybe not. So really fascinating topic. And you know, the reality is there aren't really hard answers about this, whether it's right or wrong. It's, it's individual, right? Does it make sense for you? Does it make sense for me? Did it make sense for David? These are all individual answers. And we're digging into a lot of those pros and cons today. So great conversation. You're going to learn a lot. We also talk about the state of the economy and the state of the real estate market and so much more. So you're going to learn a lot. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five, five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. People see your reviews. They think, hey, maybe I can learn something from this show as well. And they tune in and hopefully they learn something too. And you know what? I see your reviews as well. And I appreciate that so much because that helps the show grow. And I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. No matter what podcast app you use, if you do enjoy the show, do look us up and hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is David Kamara from Cape Sierra Capital. Without any further ado, here we go. David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Taylor. Great, glad to be on your show. I'm really excited to you know continue our conversation here. We've been talking for a half an hour already. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and you 
your background. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my company is called Cape Sierra Capital. We invest in uh, B and C class assets, mostly in the Midwest, but also in the Southeast. Um, I came to this, uh, I guess, business through being a management consultant and traveling so much that my wife and I had to have a conversation about how do we get me home a bit more. Um, And I was fortunate enough that uh, in the business I was running in management consulting, we had enough capital to go buy uh, a few apartment buildings for ourselves. So we did that and uh, I was very excited. Uh, I was telling everybody about it. And um, what happened is a lot of my ex-management consulting colleagues and, and clients started asking me about, hey, why don't we invest our money with you? And at first, I ignored that a bit. I, I said, I really am not looking to make this a business, kind of just focused on my own investments. But then enough people came out and asked this question that we had to take it seriously. And um, we essentially started investing with people that wanted to invest alongside us. So we today invest uh, our own money in every deal um, alongside our investors. And again, we focus on cash flow. We we like the upside from long-term appreciation. Um, and that's in a nutshell what we do. Awesome. I love it. And so we were talking and I wanted to really dig into uh, the the idea of whether an MBA is helpful for real estate investing and your, your experience obtaining your MBA and all of that, you went to a very you know, prominent business school. Can you tell us about you know, your background and, and going and getting you know, your MBA and, and all of that? And we'll dig more into it. Sure. So, so my undergrad is in computer science from the University of Michigan. Um, I actually wanted to become a doctor when I came to this country. So I'm an immigrant from Sierra Leone and Ukraine. My mother's Ukrainian. My dad's from Sierra Leone. Um, when I came, uh, my dad is a doctor in Sierra Leone, and I had assisted my dad in surgeries back in Sierra Leone. Um, the idea was to come to the States and be a doctor. Um, however, I quickly found out that it's it's quite expensive to do so. And as a foreign student, you often don't have access to loans to go to med school. So next best thing or next next fun thing that I was good at was math. And so I picked computer science, and this was just around uh, the turn of the century, early 2000s, and all, all the startups were having a lot of success. Um, so I picked computer science, um, moved to Chicago after after graduation, um, got a few offers in Silicon Valley, but um, my wife's from the Midwest and we we're dating at the time, we were planning our wedding, so I, I thought it'd be too far away. Um, don't regret the decision at all. We moved to Chicago um, and I really was interested in going to business school. Like I, I was always interested in business as a kid. I, I sold drinks and all kinds of other little tiny businesses that I did. Um, and uh, I ended up going to Chicago, University of Chicago, um, Chicago booth. The question about whether the degree is helpful in real estate, um, I think is a matter of what you make it, right? So I think there are a ton of lessons you'll learn in business school that are very applicable, right? How to How to look at a, at a financial statement, income statement, balance sheet, um, cash flow statement, uh, general accounting principles, general business strategy, I think to me have been extremely helpful. But I would say, I mean, if you scan the landscape of successful real estate investors, I mean, very, I, I wouldn't say very few, but not all of them have MBAs, right? And, and a ton of people have been successful in this business. So do you need one? I don't think you do. Um, I, I'm definitely very grateful for the knowledge I learned and the people I met. And frankly, I would say 
the network of people I've met through business school and through my consulting career since have definitely helped my real estate investing business because a lot of our investors come from that circle. Mm, okay. Okay. And for your specific background and, and your story, your journey of getting into real estate, it sounds like uh, real estate was really kind of an escape from traveling and and being away, you know, a hundred hours a week or whatever amount of time it ended up being. Do you think if maybe you had a career where you weren't traveling all the time, you were just commuting to the office, do you think you would have gotten into real estate or would you maybe have not have, uh, I don't know, felt the the obligation or the need to to build that income on the side to travel less? What do you think? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. So we started investing in real estate, my wife and I, very shortly after we bought our, our, our first house, right, our personal residence. And I think for me, it was more the the revelation that in the United States you could buy a house with so much leverage, right? So we bought our personal house. I mean, we just graduated college. We're probably a year or two out of school, and you know, I think at the time you put down five or ten percent, right, to buy a personal residence, and it was just mind-boggling to me because I mean. In Ukraine, you can't do that. And in Syria, you surely can't do that. But if you're buying something, you're buying it cash. And I think I read it. No, I read, not I think, I read a bunch of real estate books at that time. And I got very excited about it. So I convinced my wife that we should buy a few more things. And we bought some duplexes and threeplexes. And then life happened. And we have kids and ended up moving back to Michigan from, from Illinois. Um, so back to your question. We started investing in real estate because we, I, I guess I have that entrepreneurial spirit and it made sense, right? Um, but I think what really accelerated it is, is definitely the fact that um, I was not spending as much time with, with people I loved as much as I wanted to, right? So, so we had at the time, so we had two kids when we moved to Michigan, we have two more, so we have four daughters. And yeah, I was traveling a ton. I was away from home a ton. And it's just very difficult in terms of scheduling, but also just not seeing your kids grow up, right? There's definitely milestones that you will be missing if, you, if you're so involved in your corporate work. Um, particularly mine was, was a lot of travel. I traveled Mondays through Thursdays most weeks. Um, and so I don't regret the path that got me here. Um, would it have ended up differently? Had I not been traveling as much, very possibly. Um, I think that's the best answer I have at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very philosophical question, right? We can never, we can never know uh, what would have happened. But okay, so you went to uh, Chicago Booth, which I haven't looked at the rankings in in years because I haven't thought about these things in years. But that's one of the you know top handful of schools you know in the world, business schools in the world. What are your thoughts about you know whether it's worth going to a less a, a less highly ranked, if you will, uh, program. Would it be? Would it make sense to to do, especially if one has one's eye on becoming a real estate investor rather than you know furthering a, a corporate career? Sure. Um, so yes, I think. Mm, okay, so it depends on if you're paying for this yourself, right? Sometimes we we work in corporate roles where your employer helps, right? or if you have a means to get a scholarship to go to these programs, um, the knowledge I think is, is very well worth it. The, the, the difficulty with MBA programs in general is that there's not a set syllabus, right? There's not a set of classes that you know you will take 
when you get into business school and it's the same across every school, right? It's not like med school where you take all the same basics. Um, business school is more of what you make of it and what classes interest you. There are some prerequisites, right? There's like Econ 101 and some statistics courses and some finance courses. But beyond that, you're really picking a variety of electives. Um, I think if you're definitely looking to further a corporate career, my perspective is you have to go to a top 20 program um, because top 20 programs have great professors, have great recruiting, right? Which will get you into very top companies for the most part, a bit less so in the not top 20 programs. Um, if you're looking to just go for knowledge, right? To further your personal quest for knowledge and, and interest in business. I mean, I think you can learn that stuff in any program, but you can also learn a lot of that on your own as well, right? Um, and again, I point back to people that have been successful in real estate that don't have an MBA degree. You don't have to be an accountant, right? You you often will hire accountants to do accounting for you or a tax preparer to help you with tax strategy um, or tax firm. Um, but my experience, I really treasure quite a bit. I, I felt like I met great people, had very good professors, a lot of whom I still keep in contact with. Um, so I guess that's that's my answer to that question. Mm, okay. So it sounds like for kind of what I'm gathering here is for your specific situation, some of the biggest value as it pertains to your real estate portfolio now, the value that you got out of that uh, program was it increased your earnings as a professional. So you had plenty of capital to invest in your portfolio in the first place. Then as you scaled, uh, kind of uh, uh, by accident, uh, other your, your colleagues were coming to you saying, hey, could you invest my money for me? You didn't want to do it at first, and then you started doing it. It, it ended up making a lot of sense to do. But maybe from a, an academic standpoint, it it wasn't necessary, if you will. It was more access to capital, either from your own earnings or your network. Would you agree with that, or do you want to? Would you clarify? Yeah, that? yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think to use an economic term, it, the externality was having this massive network of high earning people that know you have gone through similar experiences as you, you belong to. The, the alumni network, right? And then further, in my consulting career since business school, having, again, a lot of high 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 net worth individuals that I know and have come across paths, crossed paths with, excuse me, um, including my clients, um, ex-colleagues, that was extremely helpful. And, and as you mentioned, as a management consultant, you're, you're highly compensated, right? And so I, I was able to be in a place where we had substantial assets that we could invest to go buy our own deals, um, which we then opened up to other people as well. So yes, you're, you're exactly correct. Okay. And I want to, you know, um, maybe turn the lens toward our, our listener out there who's maybe a, a busy professional in a career, you know, they're earning good money now, but they, they don't have an MBA and they, they know they want to invest in real estate. Would you say it, it makes sense to, invest in an MBA specifically with the vision of building one's real estate portfolio, minding that a decent MBA can be well over $100,000, not even counting you know, lost salary by the time that you, uh, you allocate to it, whether you go you know, full-time or, or at night. What are your thoughts about that? Would it make more sense to just go for it and build the, the real estate portfolio or go get the MBA? 
Yeah. So again, very hypothetical question. I think it depends on, so I guess let's take a step back. If you're looking to build a real estate portfolio, I think you will need a couple of things, right? You need some, you, you need to be good with numbers, right? And and some people don't need an MBA or you really don't need an MBA to be good with numbers. You can understand those. It's not a very complex business. Um, so one of the great things about real estate is it's actually a pretty simple business, right? Relative to most of the um, businesses that I helped or we work on in, in management consulting, this is fairly straightforward, right? There's rents, there's expenses, and then there's the market, and then there's debt. So those numbers are easy to understand. So you don't need an MBA for that. I think the other thing that you would need if you're looking to uh, invest with people or start your own syndication business or whatever it is that you're looking to do is you need access to capital, right? And so um, a lot of my computer science classmates, right, from University of Michigan ended up in Silicon Valley and by nature of being there or ended up in some startups somewhere, um, mostly tech startups, by nature of being in those kinds of businesses, they have access to a network of people that, again, have a lot of money and love their day-to-day job, but have excess cash to invest, right? So if you have that kind of a network or a network similar to that, I don't think you need to go get an MBA. You can find the knowledge of what's taught in those programs yourself. Um, however, right, the alternative is you you go do that. Yes, there, it's a there's an opportunity cost to the, the money. And potentially, if you go full-time, you're taking two years out of your professional life to do so. Um, but there's the additional benefit of the network and the people you'll have. And those relationships are formed for years and a lifetime. So it's not a clear cut. I think it's not a very clear path as to which way makes sense. I think it depends on where you are today. What um, what does your your network of, of people or your professional network or your uh, friends network look like? And how much do people know, like, and trust you, right, to give you substantial sums of money to go invest in real estate. So really those would be the questions I'd ask. And um, you can do, you can do either path and be successful, I guess is my point. Okay. Okay. But on the, if you're somebody say you're, you're somebody who only wants to invest your own capital, you want to go buy duplexes or something like that, you know, for your own account, then your, your network for you know capital sources, things like that might not be quite as necessary. So it may uh, lean towards making less sense. I, I don't know. I just want to dig into that a little more. What, what do you think? I'm sorry. Could you ask that again? Sure. So maybe this is if you're if you're a busy professional who has capital, you know, you want to invest. You you don't have ambitions of building a syndication company where you're going to be raising capital from passive investors potentially. Then it would probably make um, less sense to to go get the MBA. I suppose if I'm reading into your, I think so. I mean, I think. If you're just looking to buy your own your own investments, I mean, it's then you're more focused on earning more money from whatever sources you have today, so that you can save more money and go put those into put that cash into investments of your own. Absolutely, awesome. Well, you know, this is a, a topic that you know, listeners may not know. I put a lot of thought into in the 2014 uh, or so time frame and decided not to go uh, get an MBA. But I know there are people out there. Who are you know really thinking about it, especially as it pertains to uh, building a real estate portfolio? So I'm glad we had the chance to uh, discuss that with you today. And you know, I'd like to just dig more into your real estate portfolio. You got started just before uh, the Great Recession, investing in real estate, and we find ourselves in uh, in some interesting times today with interest rates going up and and so many changes, the market being so uh, competitive. So I'd just like to dig into you know the, the 
things that you're working on these days, what you think about, you know, the future of, of the real estate market and, you know, kind of how you're positioning your business to, uh, you know, thrive in this, uh, in the coming, uh, conditions. Sure. Um, so, I mean, today we're looking at, um, cash flowing assets, um, Really, we're we're looking more at the opportunity than the area per se. We most of our assets today in the Midwest. Uh, we have one asset so far in the Southeast, Mississippi, um, and we're very optimistic, right? We we look at the opportunity if it makes a lot of sense, um, and the deal is big enough. If it's out of area, we'll do it anyway. Um, in terms of the general, I guess macro environment, I think it's it's an interesting time because there was a lot of uh, money in the economy. Um, being supplied by the government, right, through the various uh, programs. But I think um, I think it's actually a, a good time to invest because interest rates are still historically low, and frankly, will be for a long time, right? Regardless of where you're looking on the on the spectrum of interest rates, we're at a very low place. And even if we go up, frankly, two percent, I mean, if it goes to like five plus percent interest rates, that's still going to be pretty low, relatively speaking. Um, I was speaking to. Uh, an older gentleman, um, we're closing a deal not long ago, and he talked about um, the early 80s where he almost went bankrupt on one of his deals because he had 21% interest rates to deal with. And uh, that's a different level of, of interest rates, right? So you, you kind of think about that in perspective to where we are today. And I mean, interest rates are very cheap. So the great, the great reason I think, or the, the, why I see this environment as being a great time to invest is interest rates are still very low. Um, you can lock in for you know five, ten years, whatever your horizon is, um, thirty-five years in some loans, um, and because of the inflationary environment, right, your debt is fixed, your expenses are fairly fixed, and your your top line, so to speak, your revenue will be going up in the next number of years. Um, now, that that's not to say that you can just go buy any deal. You still have to look at the numbers and not overpay, so that your leverage just doesn't destroy all your earnings. But there's there's good deals out there, right? And so we our perspective is we, we like to be patient. We we don't do a ton of deals. We look at a lot of deals and we decline most, right? And I think that's not just because um, we don't want to do more, right? But but often we we just are very conservative about what we like to do. We we don't do a lot of uh, value add deals. So everything we buy is ninety percent plus occupied, and there's fewer of those deals that cash flow enough where your returns, like we like our returns to come almost 50-50 from cash flow and then the, the appreciation on, on sale or refinance. And with valuations pushing up, everybody's kind of pricing the assets at top dollar. It's more difficult to find the things you're looking for. So that's our perspective. And that's the kind of things we look for. Um, and it's hard when you know, sometimes investors are like, hey, when's your next deal? And you just have to be patient and not just swing at anything because people are ready to give you money to go invest. Um, this is very much a reputation business and you want to make sure that you don't lose people's money. And, and it's frankly difficult to lose people's money, but you want to at least deliver on what you say you will deliver, right? And that's and that's key for us. Absolutely. It does, it does kind of uh, hurt to have people reach out and say, hey, when's your next deal? And say, we're working on it, but we're not, we're not doing just any deal that we can find. And you've mentioned, you know, we've talked about debt and leverage and uh, you have done one of the few deals financed through HUD. I mean, I don't see a lot of syndicators uh, and, and haven't in my own experience as well, uh, use their lending for, for a number of reasons. Can you tell us about 
how that deal was structured, why you went with that note, and and uh, some of the concerns that you uh, had uh, potentially with with using that type of leverage. Yeah. So so the the genesis of that deal was, uh, or the the reason why we ended up using HUD was it was in the middle of the coronavirus, right? So the pandemic had broken out. We had um, bid on this deal. The seller said, no, that's too little. We're going to sell it for more. And we said, fine. So the, the deal disappeared. They took it off or they actually, somebody put on a contract. Um, and then um, it reappeared many months later. So I went back to it and said, what's going on here? Um, my broker told me the, the seller or whoever was trying to buy it prior to us hadn't closed. And so it was back on the market. So I, I indicated that we'd be willing to buy it at the same price. They thought about it for a bit and then came back and said, sure, let's do it. But they had one one request. They didn't want us to close very quickly. Um, and that was an interesting request, right? Most, most, most sellers want to close as soon as possible. So what had happened was this was uh, summer of 2020. Yeah, summer of 2020. And um, the 10-year treasury had fallen off a cliff. So the 10-year treasury was at, I think, about 0.6%. And I think as of like late last week, it's at 2% somewhere there so it had fallen massively and the issue specifically here was the seller had a massive prepayment penalty if they sold the loan right and so if they if they if they sold the loan if they paid off the debt so if they paid off this debt essentially the way it works with commercial um, loans often is if you had let's say you had a five percent loan and you had said you're paying it off over let's say 10 years um say in year five you know someone's paying you a ton of money to sell this well let's say your interest rate was 5% and now interest rates are 3%. The bank has taken that hit of the 2% difference, right? So you essentially have to make them whole for another five years of them not receiving that difference in, in what they would have earned on their money that they, that they um, lent to you originally. So his prepayment penalty, became, because of what had happened with the 10-year T-note, was about a half million dollars. And so he was banking on the 10-year T-note rising some, I mean, not all the way, but at least some, so that he'd pay a bit less of the prepayment penalties. So essentially, by virtue of delaying the loan, uh, by virtue of delaying the sale, he was trying to minimize his cash outflow and actually keeping more money in his pocket. So we, at that point, said, sure. I mean, we, we actually put in the in the loan contract that we wouldn't sell until, or we wouldn't buy until, I think it was November at the time. But then we went back and looked at our loan sources and said, what can we do? creatively to minimize our interest rate, because again, it's COVID and everyone's freaking out about what's going to happen to the world. And is this, I mean, is anyone going to pay rent, right? Um, so stumbled on this HUD product, which is a, a very, very good product. It's a fixed rate for 35 years uh, type of product. Um, the, the downside is you can't, well, you can, but the prepayment structure, the, the base prepayment structure is it's a 10-year hold and it's step down 1%. It's, your prepayment starts at 10% in year one and goes to zero in year 10. Um, and then we had to go and see if investors were interested in a 10-year hold, right? And some people were very open to it because you know the, the property was going to cash flow very nicely. But others were a bit more skeptical and they said, you know, I mean, we love the deal, but 10 years is a long time to hold the property. So we're not going to invest. Um, long story short, we did the we did the deal and it HUD loans take longer. And why people don't use them is they're very, um, they're very, very thorough, right? So they go through the property in, in tremendous detail, far greater than a Fannie or Freddie type loan would do. And they come up with these requirements that the seller needs to fulfill. In this case, the seller was open to all that because, again, for him, the, the later he closed, the better for him. 
Um, and the 10 year tre treasury actually ended up going, going up quite nicely by the time we closed. Um, so he, he benefited from that and we benefited from a, from a great interest rate. So we, on the HUD loan at the time, this, the program has changed since, but you can get a, you can get a reduction in interest rate based on whether the, the building qualifies for green certification, meaning it's energy efficient and all this. Um, so we actually got an interest rate of all in 2.46% on that loan, and it's fixed for 35 years. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you're practically being, being given money, right? If you think about what inflation is and what that interest rate is, essentially we're, we're getting that capital to do the deal for free, right? Because, I mean, I think the latest January year-on-year -year CPI inflation index number was like 7%, right? So you're essentially being given cash to go do a deal. Um, so it worked out great. Uh, everyone's very happy that the property is performing extremely well. Um, we distributed a 10% um, cash on cash return where we promised like a seven and a half um, and everyone's super happy. So th those loan products are mostly not used primarily because it takes a long time to close the loan, right? And most sellers want to close much quicker. Now you, you can use a bridge product with something like that, where you can do a bridge, close the loan, and then go do your HUD loan. Again, the question is, if you have investors in that deal, are they willing to hold for a longer period of time? Or what kind of a prepayment structure do you need to negotiate at, at close? Awesome. Well, I'm glad we got to dig into that. There's a close time. And then there's also those prepayment penalties can be huge, especially when the interest rates have fallen so significantly. And I have spoken with people who have gotten seriously burned by not understanding prepayment penalties when they first got the loan. So typically, I found when folks get those notes, if they understand how the prepayment penalties work and the dynamics and everything, they're more prepared to deal with that situation when it comes about. But if they don't understand it in the first place and you come a few years down the road, interest rates drop, and you didn't know that you were going to have this potentially, you can get in some really uh, some some hot water You know, if you don't know what you're getting into. But you knew what you're getting into, so it's it's not a a, a troubling situation. Well, I mean, I think you do have to get educated on that, right? Because I mean, I have I have two loans on very similar properties taken around the same time. In one of them, I basically have a step down prepayment, right? And so three years out, it's a 1% prepayment penalty, which I mean, is pretty good. On another one, and again, these loans were taken out in 2018-ish timeframe. So at the time you talk to any banker, it's like, well, rates at 5%, this is super low, like rates can't go any lower. So on one of them, I have, like I said, a, a fixed rate prepay um, where I know what that rate is. On the other one, I had yield maintenance. And of course, the thought was if, if rates go up and you have yield maintenance, you'll be fine while rates then go up. So on one, just refinance this thing. And it was like a $70,000 prepayment penalty on one. On the other one, it's like a $9,000 prepayment penalty. So it was very different. And you have to understand what those are. And sometimes it's tough to predict the, the future and rates with rates, you kind of have to take a stance on which way you think they're going. Um, yeah, you, you, you definitely need to understand how those work. Totally, totally. I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. 
Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, David, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Sure. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, so... Um, one of those, one of those um, refinance that one of those refinance uh, deals that I just talked about. Um, my broker brought this deal to me, which he found on the MLS. Uh, it was a 37 unit deal, um, just listed in the MLS for I think it was 1.1 million at the time. Um, it was an old high school that was converted to apartments, um, so it was very unique. Every every property. Every unit was different because it was a classroom essentially that was retrofitted to be to be an apartment. It was a very neat building. Um, we ended up buying that deal for about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and three years later, we just refinanced it for uh, about one point seven five million dollars. Um, so that was by by far and away <laughs> the best deal so far. Um, in that you know just. Again, if you think about it, $850,000 with leverage and the return on that money, I mean, it was just very significant. I mean, there was just really through doing the right things, right? Investing in cleaning up the property, getting better tenants, um, upgrading some kitchens, bathrooms, doing landscaping. We had to do a roof. Um, but that was a that was a really great uh, investment for us. Nice, I love that. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Um, so none of my investments have been disastrous by any means. But one of the first um, duplexes we bought uh, was in Gary, Indiana. Uh, Gary, Indiana is a somewhat blighted area. I think at some point had a reputation for being most dangerous city in the U.S., etc. The investment actually worked out well, but the thing that I learned from that was, so that property paid itself off in whatever, 10 years or so. Um, It was a duplex. Uh, My tenants, I think I still had the same tenants when I bought it and when I sold it. Um, It was just not a property that would ever appreciate, right? So I bought it for cash flow. It cash flowed, it paid itself off. Um, But it wasn't a place that when I went there, my wife was very happy. <laughs> was like, hey, you need to make sure you don't get shot in that neighborhood. Um, so it was one of those where you you are trying to do the right things for the tenants, and in some cases, people just you know can't help themselves, right? Like you show up, try to like I remember very well distinctly. I went there one one Monday morning. I took the later shift at the time at work, and everybody's home. There's three TVs on. Uh, nobody's at work, um, and it's like, what's going on here, right? Everyone is just not trying too hard, right? I mean, I know that there's many underlying issues socioeconomically where some people can get work, but in this case, this was pre-pandemic and I mean, people could still get work. Um, so it was one of those disappointing like kind of feelings like I'm trying to I'm trying to raise the level of living here and it's just not seeming to be appreciated. So the investment itself worked out well, but the lesson for me was you can't change the neighborhood. Um, it, it's really tough to have properties in neighborhoods like that. And um, while financially worked out okay, it was just a, a big lesson that, I mean, that's very tough to do, right? And there's there's more needed there, more governmental support or some kind of programs to improve people's lives. Interesting. Okay. Okay. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So um, I think I, I think I, we talked about this briefly before, we started recording. 
I think my um, my revelation or my the thing that kind of spurred like triggered my trying to get out of corporate and into more real estate is really trying to make income passively. I think um, we see a lot of these high income earners, right? Whether it's you know uh, Super Bowl athletes or um, performers. And really, I mean, highly paid professionals, which is what I was, right? And I think the the revelation for me is you're selling your time for money, right? And and as as long as you keep on doing that, you're somewhat limited, right? That there's only so much time, right? And I mean, to my kids and younger folks, like my advice is try to start some kind of a business where you eventually don't have to be a part of it, right? Where you, that there's a product business or a service business where other people can, can keep driving it or the idea has value in itself and you collect rents, right? Whether that's um, royalties from music or whatever, or, or it's rents from physical apartment buildings, you want to get into some kind of a passive cash flow situation because then you're making, you're essentially making whatever money you earn as a, as a highly paid professional work for you right? And at some point you can stop trading your hours for those dollars and just have the capital you invest generate dollars for you, right? It just gives you a ton of freedom to go explore whatever it is you're interested in, intellectually, um, philanthropically, really, really whatever you need. Like if you're, if you're still wanting to go run a business or build something, you have the, the latitude to do so. Um, and really, I'm very thankful how things have worked out personally in that I found this space and um, I'm just very grateful. I love it. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all these lessons and and helping us explore uh, this topic of whether an MBA is helpful in real estate is something I've wanted to discuss for for quite a while. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about the real estate deals you're doing or anything else, where can they track you down? Yeah. So um, you can find us, uh, me on our website, which is capital.com. And while you're there, you can check out our free ebook, which is uh, the personal cash flow formula. And that's at capesierracapital slash cash flow. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.